we must connect business integrity or anti-corruption initiatives with ESG risk management. The reason for this is that frequently the environmental and social risks that people would consider as part of an ESG framework, we believe that they are clearly, particularly in the emerging market context, driven by corruption or other financial crime or business integrity risks. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. In this episode, we venture into the world of business integrity and environmental and social governance, ESG. And our guide is Huma Yusuf, a specialist working on business integrity at British International Investment and Impact Investor. Impact Investors are organisations which generally look to make investments in companies in developing countries, the aim of having positive development impact. That mandate means they have to grapple with all sorts of integrity challenges, and Huma discusses some of these in this conversation. If you're not familiar with the impact investing world, do check out the show notes for background materials, in particular recent reports published by Transparency International and the World Economic Forum. In this episode, we focus specifically on links between business integrity and ESG, and what increased attention to ESG in the business world means for people working on corruption issues. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Shipley. I'm a researcher at the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex, and I will be your guest host today. I'm really pleased to have with me Huma Yusuf, Director of Business Integrity in the Impact Group at the UK Development Finance Institute, British International Investment. She is going to talk to us about some of the debates around ESG and what this means for anti-corruption work. Hi, Huma. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast today. Thanks for coming on. So to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in corruption? Sure. So I've been at British International Investment, which, as you've said, is the UK's development finance arm for about five years. And I sit in a team which is called our business integrity team, which is essentially a catch all phrase to cover how BII thinks about financial crime, reputational, regulatory, and operational risks in its portfolio. So we invest in companies, in fund managers uh, across South Asia, Africa, and as of recently in the Far East, in Southeast Asia as well. And the goal of my team is essentially to try and identify where our investments might face endemic integrity risks such as corruption in uh, to the extent that it would hamper the business's ability to operate properly, to have uh, strong financial returns, and of course, most importantly to us, um, that it might be in a way that would prevent that company from supporting the sustainable development goals and having development impact through its business operations. But this is a somewhat 
new turn for my career. And my interest in corruption actually stems to almost 20 years ago when I started out as a journalist in Karachi in Pakistan, which was mm-hmm. home for me where I grew up. And there I was uh, actually working in, in my home city of Karachi as a journalist focused on issues of gang violence in the sort of un. Uh, undeveloped or underdeveloped uh, slum communities of the city. And I remember for a long time thinking that I was not at all interested in corruption uh, and that what I was interested in was the human stories that come out of something like a urban conflict, that I was interested in uh, the dynamics of power between state institutions and non-state actors, that I was interested in the politics of land, in nationalism, in histories of how cities evolve. And it took me many years of working in that space to realize that you cannot tell any of those stories without actually realizing that through many of them, there is one common theme that drives people's motivations and that drives power dynamics. And much of that, certainly in the emerging markets where I have spent most of my career, is linked somehow to corruption and the desire either to uh, participate in rent seeking or to find ways to overcome it and thrive in spite of its prevalence. Were there any stories that you worked on which really changed your perspective on this and and taught you to focus more on corruption? I think if as a reporter in your early 20s, you're put in the context of covering something like gang violence or you're put in the context of covering something like turf wars and land acquisitions in a sort of thriving metropolis like Karachi, the pieces that you get most interested in are those elements of conflict, access to weapons, police. So as I've said, the the sort of collusion between police officials and criminals and the blurred line between who actually gets to enforce rules in a particular setup. But it took me a long time to recognize that the reason that all these different actors were able to thrive is because they had access to illicit financial flows and that their relevance or their importance to the city's economy, the levels of turning another cheek or allowing certain groups to continue to operate was very closely linked to who would ultimately benefit because of corrupt means. And uh, and you just start to realize that that all these, all these stories are somehow connected and that if you follow the money, even in a story that initially seems that it's not about money, that you would eventually start to understand the real drivers for why certain pol- political economies are the way they are or that certain security issues persist, even though you can see that there are law enforcement solutions to those issues. Okay, really interesting. I mean, I think we could probably do another podcast on urban conflict and Karachi, but we, but we wanted to kind of talk to you today about ESG and actually perhaps maybe maybe some of these themes will come out of that as well. So th- there's a lot of commentary out there which, which talks in broad terms about the rise of ESG in the business community. And it, it's certainly now commonplace for firms and investors to be touting their ESG credentials. And you can see that some firms have made real changes to their business models and, and most rec- recognize that reputation, at least this is a topic they, they have to show interest and commitment to. We're also seeing some shifts in, in some components of ESG moving from, from voluntary standards to being codified into hard law. At the same time, 
there's a lot of skepticism around ESG and some doubts about the sincerity and the credibility of, of some of the commitments firms are making. It's also not dissimilar, dissimilar from the anti-corruption field and that people use these terms in, in different ways and don't necessarily share the same understanding. Certainly looking at this from the perspective of someone interested in corruption, there seems to be particular confusion as to whether ESG incorporates business integrity and anti-corruption or if these are separate topics. Uh, so, Huma, can you help us here? Uh, how do you understand these terms and how is it relevant to people working on business integrity and anti-corruption? It is becoming extremely difficult to pass through the jargon around ESG. For us, our approach to ESG is enshrined in our policy on responsible investing, which was released uh, and updated um, and recrafted last year in 2022. And what that policy does, is it sets out why we think ESG is extremely important. And the way that we define it is in this context of responsible investing. And we look at it as an approach to risk management that can eventually help us ensure that our investments are having the development impact that we are mandated to pursue through the course of our investing. There is this conflation, I think, increasingly, whereby when you hear the term ESG, what people are actually starting to think about is greenhouse gas emissions and the Paris Agreement and the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that's where some of the confusion starts to come from. Because right. if you think about ESG as what it says on the tin, environmental social governance, I think it becomes clearer to understand that ESG is more about an operational approach. It's about a risk management approach, and it's about an approach that helps build resilience in companies, mm -hmm. particularly focused on the ways that they engage with and operate in the context of people and the planet, uh, which is a little bit distinct from that specific climate-focused goal, which is about net zero or emissions reductions. Yeah. Um, and so environmental and social risks and business integrity risks are more about this broader operational approach, which all companies can have, whether or not they see themselves as being central, for example, to the green transition or focused in a climate finance context. And this question about whether business integrity fits in this space. So as I said, the policy and responsible investing at BII covers environmental and social risks, as well as business integrity risks. And I think that there is a growing understanding that that corporate governance, which is most frequently thought of as the G of ESG, okay. is also central to uh, how we can think about these issues. There's another development finance institution, um, FMO, it's the Dutch development finance institution, and they have a wonderful metaphor for thinking about this, which is to think about corporate governance as the roots of a tree that you're trying to plant. And the trunk of that tree is business integrity risk management, which is you know, essentially ensuring that you aren't facing financial crime risks such as corruption or fraud or money laundering, et cetera, that would upend your business model. And that it is this the roots of corporate governance with the strong trunk of business integrity that enables you to have good environmental and social outcomes, which is what you can think of as the leaves of that tree. And I've always found that also a very helpful metaphor to turn to, um, to see how these things are all linked and interconnected, but at the same time, quite distinct as well. Thanks. That's, that's, that's really helpful. Are there, are there any examples you, you could highlight which I guess, draw out the connections between, between these the three topics you talked about. 
We have really been emphasizing this idea that we must connect business integrity or anti-corruption initiatives with ESG risk management. And that the reason for this is that because frequently the environmental and social risks that people would consider as part of an ESG framework, and here I'm talking about things like you know, land acquisition, uh, looking at communities and how they might be impacted by businesses' operations, looking at biodiversity and conservation efforts, looking at labor and working condition, all these types of topics that get covered under the ESG frameworks. We believe that they are clearly in many cases, particularly in the emerging market context, driven by corruption drivers or other financial crime or business integrity risks. So they might be driven by those or they might be amplified by those or your ESG outcomes that you are looking at may potentially have been skewed by a corruption risk or some other kind of business integrity risk. So let me give you a couple of examples to you know, spell out what I mean by that. So the most obvious one that comes to mind is that if if someone is an investor or or a customer and looking to uh, engage with a company or invest in a company and they're interested in seeing their environmental profiles so what impact they've had on the you know natural resources that that their business operations engage with you might do some due diligence and you might look for an environmental uh, impact assessment or an environmental certification or a permit that sort of gives them the stamp of approval that they have gone about their business operations and growth in a sustainable fashion. But what if that permit or that environmental impact assessment had been acquired illicitly through the payment of a bribe, mm-hmm. um, which in many of the markets, certainly that BII invests in, in many emerging market contexts, is not a completely unheard of scenario and it's a real risk that you can think about. But you wouldn't know to ask that question. You wouldn't know to, to grill the integrity of those environmental sign-offs and permits that you're receiving from your investee or from your potential business partner, unless you've really thought more holistically about the kinds of endemic risks in an ecosystem and considered where there might be a corruption driver that is skewing the due diligence that you're doing from an ESG perspective. So that's a bit of a blunt example. But we also see these kinds of issues coming up in other sectors and, and in other cases. Healthcare is an interesting space because obviously patient welfare is central to uh, any ESG framework that's interested in things such as uh, health, safety, security, you know, safeguarding risks, um, and just general conditions and patient welfare issues. But we have found one of the most common sorts of corruption risks in many emerging markets is this phenomenon of the referral fee. And this is essentially a form of bribes that are paid by, for example, hospital chains to doctors to incentivize them to you know, refer their patients to particular clinics or to pass them on for additional lab testing that they may or may not need. But it's just a way for uh, hospital chains to generate additional revenue, or it might be a way to 
you know, ensure that uh, certain quotas are met for the sales of particular medicines. It's a kind of corruption that we've seen uh, in the pharmaceutical industry as well, where different kinds of incentives are given to doctors to sort of spur the prescription of certain drugs, right. whether or not they're needed, and also with sort of a frequency that might be disproportionate. And the end result is that, you know, many doctors get some kind of cut or commission or perk or, you know, luxury trips to resort destinations, etc., in exchange for those kinds of activities. Activities. Right. And there's a varying level of legislation around this area. It is one of those gray spaces, which in some countries is very clearly outlawed. And these kinds of practices are very clearly defined as bribes or illicit payments and are, are not allowed. Whereas in other cases, it sort of falls in the net um, and, and between the cracks of anti-corruption legislation. And so there's a bit of a gray area about whether these are commissions or incentives or bonuses and whether doctors can receive them. But I think this is a, a really good example of an area where if you really think about those corruption dynamics and the outcome that they have in terms of reducing pa patient welfare, in terms of worse health outcomes in some cases, in terms of reducing impact, because essentially what you're doing is uh, potentially reducing uh, someone's ability to access healthcare or to access appropriate medication because they are not able to play, pay the premium for those additional extra medical tests or for more expensive drugs or whatever the case might be. So you're sort of failing on all the ESG and development impact indicators and that these are essentially being skewed by what at its base is something that you could consider a bribe. So it's those kinds of sort of more integrated and subtle issues that we're interested uh, in exploring when we start to make the argument that anti-corruption considerations should be quite central to any kind of ESG framework or the way that you think about how you are monitoring and gauging your ESG outcomes. Yeah, that's a really interesting example. And I think when people talk about ESG and anti-corruption, that's a type of issue which might not necessarily be at the, the top of their list. I think a lot of attention is certainly focused on the links around climate, for instance, but kind of is a, is a critical social issue. So what you're saying is we see an adverse outcome, which is that patients are are being referred unnecessarily, which may have uh, negative implications for patient welfare and standards. That's what we might observe. But be behind the scenes, what's driving that is problems around the incentive structure for doctors and, and the types of payments they're receiving for, for that work. What, what do you do about a problem like that? I think that's the that's the million dollar question, isn't it? For us, I think just starting to think about these issues and recognizing that these are holistic challenges and that they're interconnected is the first step towards tackling it. I think it's once you can see these challenges in the whole that you get better at developing uh, approaches, whether it's through due diligence, whether it's through ongoing monitoring, whether it's through the type of audits that you conduct, that you can start to address these kinds of issues. But you won't get to that point unless you first of all acknowledge that this might be a risk and tackle it at the outset. The other thing is about sort of reframing how we speak about these issues. So, I, you know, in the case of referral fees, just being able to 
get people to recognize that the dynamics and some of those incentive structures are essentially the same as uh, basic corruption and relabeling activities that are taken as granted as a way of doing business in a particular market and sort of starting to show why they, they might be perceived differently and might be perceived negatively. Okay. Um, that is also a long journey that takes a lot of this kind of awareness building. And I think there's actually some power to linking these kinds of challenges up to broader positive outcomes that companies and professionals are seeking to have. So I think that there's actually quite a lot of benefit to be gained for anti-corruption initiatives and movements to be able to link those corruption dynamics to outcomes such as ENS, environmental and social outcomes or development impact outcomes. Because while people may be willing to overlook certain incentive structures in one conversation, they will not be willing to accept environmental and social failings um, or development impact setbacks or skewed mm. impact outcomes in another conversation. And so linking the two up, I think, is actually a great driver to actually get people to recognize and address those root causes um, of challenges such as these corruption drivers in the first place. Yeah. And so maybe kind of framing an integrity issue as being about, this is about professionalization and you know protecting patients rather than necessarily explicitly talking about the corruption elements to it. Yes, I think linking it to patient welfare and often, you know, it's the kind of thing that where you would ideally want to see discussions around reviewing financial models and incentive structures and thinking creatively about marketing approaches and just essentially mm -hmm. finding other ways that you could uh, have the same outcome, which is to generate financial returns and revenues for hospital chains or pharma companies, but through other means that are more transparent and that do not have the same negative impact on patient welfare. Great. So that's a, that's a really interesting example from the healthcare sector. Are there any other examples you could give where you see the connections between these topics are the, are the strongest? Like certainly there are a lot of NGOs which look at areas like forestry, environmental crime, kind of are there topics which you think might be overlooked a little bit? I think that there is not enough attention being paid to social risks and the connections with corruption there. And by social risks, we mean those kinds of ways in which businesses through their operations might impact the people that they interact with, whether it's customers and that kind of patient welfare area that we've been talking about, or employees themselves, or then the communities that might be affected through a company's business operations. So for example, through displacements or through um, the diversion of supply chains or through the over-exploitation of land or um, agricultural land to serve a, a particular uh, market need, etc. And many of those social risks seem to be exacerbated by corruption risks. And this is that area in particular where you start to see what we would consider more um, classic forms of corruption, the bribe paid in order to get access to community land or um, the bribe paid in order to get a particular tariff on a kind of agricultural produce that, you know, might skew a local community's ability to still be competitive. And I think that's an area where the anti-corruption movement in particular uh, should be spending more time to sort of link up and better understand 
um, that as the ESG community goes forward and really emphasizes social risks and and sort of how relevant they are to businesses in terms of both uh, business disruption, but much more importantly, business transparency and brand loyalty and reputational risk, et cetera, um, that the anti-corruption community is able to connect those dots and better recognize where corruption drivers might be exacerbating those kinds of social risks. Yeah, one, one thing that interests me is is how you kind of sell these messages to to some of the businesses that you're working with. So you kind of said it in the beginning that your work involves working closely with businesses in, in emerging market and economies. And in many of those markets, corruption is, is a systemic issue and and that might manifest itself in the day-to-day interaction between firms and the public sector involves corrupt corrupt exchanges. It's kind of the way that business gets gets done. So, how do you incentivize businesses to, to care about business integrity and, and ESG when you know when this is the environment that they're working in? So, I'll focus on business integrity in my response, and that it's there has been a sort of growing recognition that there is a business case for business integrity. And that is largely focused on one, recognizing that a major business integrity event, so a massive bribe paid and discovered, a major regulatory fine, a massive fraud, major litigation, that these kinds of things would disrupt a business's financial returns. And that bottom line argument is extremely powerful when you're dealing in the private sector context. And I think that that bottom line argument has been really well fleshed out over recent years. There's both a growing amount of academic research that has started to draw the link between sound corporate governance at companies and their financial returns. And while we're seeing this kind of research is currently focused in uh, developed markets and in sort of larger companies, the FTSE indices, etc., we know that similar dynamics are at play even in family-owned businesses or SMEs in emerging markets. And it's just a matter of time before the evidence starts to come out. But there is this, there's that sort of simple, obvious argument about the business case. There's also um, a growing understanding of the power of reputational risk, so that where you are seen as a business that operates in a way in a way that is illicit or non-transparent or unfair somehow, that that reputational risk could prove extremely damaging. And as uh, economic environments become more pressured and companies are really looking at those fine margins, I think that there's also a recognition that good financial controls, good operational efficiencies, good corporate governance are actually uh, ways to drive efficiencies and cut costs. And that there is then that added benefit that those are the same controls that also help you tackle financial crime challenges such as corruption or fraud. So I think speaking to people from the point of what their concerns are, which are those financial returns and those cost cuttings and that operational efficiency, but then helping them recognize that there's also this added value in terms of improving business integrity risk management and minimizing reputational risk uh, does prove to be quite a compelling argument. Um, I think we're also increasingly seeing clear expectations coming from investors, uh, people who are willing to take shareholding in smaller companies 
companies in particular, um, that this is their base expectation that people be able to take these issues seriously. And I think that while it's well known that the, the sort of ESG flag is being waved high and there's an expectation that companies would have some form of approach to um, environmental and social governance and risk management, that what doesn't get said enough is that hand in hand with that, there is this growing expectation that companies be able to perform well on corporate governance and business integrity as well. So as those investor expectations shift, and that's what you will need to have in place in order to attract investment um, and to attract customers increasingly, I think there's a growing body of very, very well-informed um, consumers and, you know, there's social media um, in every market in the world and there's a lot of attention paid to these kinds of issues now and I think that brand loyalty and reputational risk piece from a consumer perspective is also really key and all of these together make for a really compelling argument for better business integrity risk management but to that I will add this new point that we are trying to really emphasize that business integrity and corruption risk are also threats to a company's best intentions to have good ESG and development impact outcomes is becoming another one of those arguments that we can make to support uh, better integrity risk management. In the first half of this episode, we looked at linkages between business integrity and and ESG for investors and firms working in developing countries. In the second half, I start by asking Huma about greenwashing, perhaps the integrity issue which has received the most attention in ESG circles. Huma helps define this problem and the implications for people working on anti-corruption. We then discuss what professionals in the business integrity and ESG fields can learn from each other to promote the importance of these topics with businesses. That was really helpful in talking a little bit about how these issues manifest when you're working with firms day to day in emerging markets. I just wanted to go back to some of these broader debates around ESG and business integrity. And you spoke a little bit about this in, in your introduction, but there's also what some people call this problem of greenwashing, where firms are exaggerating their environmental performance. Do you see this as a, as a significant problem? I certainly think that it's a major problem. And of course, we want to get it right. But I do think that it's important that we start to understand what different frameworks and approaches are seeking to do and recognize that, for example, greenwashing is not the kind of corruption that you would tackle, for example, if you were working from a business integrity perspective. And I'll stick to that because that's the work that, that I do and that my team does. And what I mean by that is that we've got to also realize that what you're trying to do if you're working in the area of integrity risk management is improve a company's approach to managing inherent risks, operational risks, regulatory risks, financial crime risks. And that obviously that approach will rely on the development of internal government governance standards, internal uh, controls, uh, reporting and escalations, whistleblowing policies, etc. The phenomenon of greenwashing, whereby there is willful misrepresentation of the actual carbon, the carbon reduction or carbon emissions re removal, etc., 
greenwashing itself is distinct from these issues. It is a willful misrepresentation of a climate impact or a carbon footprint. And I think it's important to recognize that these are distinct issues, but also at the same time recognize that inevitably the good controls that you're putting in place as part of a business integrity risk management system would also support the reduction in something like greenwashing, but that that is something that is an area of technical expertise uh, where this whole, you know, there's a, there's a different approach required for how you're thinking about carbon credits and capturing carbon emissions and making sure that you're doing accurate reporting, but that that is not the same as ESG or it's not the same as business integrity risk management, which as I'm saying is more about operational approaches to how you would think about ENS and business integrity risk to your operations. And I think it's actually more important to recognize that some of these are different things with different methodologies and different approaches uh, rather than to conflate them uh, because that uh, leads to an inadequate mitigation of some of these risks and issues that are emerging. Okay, so you see this kind of more as an issue of around public reporting by firms, which is also a problem kind of linked, a broader problem linked to firm culture and accuracy in terms of what they're projecting publicly. And you're distinguishing that from the kind of day-to-day operational work, which we were talking about with some of the other sort of social examples. Yes, and I think with greenwashing, it's a debate that I'm not an expert on, so I won't stray into it, but a lot of it is about the lack of regulation and the lack of articulated standards for how you could measure your carbon footprint and your greenhouse gas emissions or the lack thereof or the contribution that you're making either to um, removing or not emitting greenhouse gases. And so it's a very technical arena. And I think that, um, you know, most companies are awaiting clearer regulation, clearer guidelines in this space. And I think that there is a broader point around transparency around greenwashing, which is definitely linked to business integrity. Um, And this, as I say, approaches to corporate governance and approaches to integrity risk management, but that one is about operational approaches, while the other is more of a technical domain. Yeah, great. So just to round off our discussion on on ESG, do you see this as a a good or a bad thing for professionals working in the anti-corruption field? I definitely see it as a good thing, and it's for some of the reasons that I've already touched on in this discussion. The first is Everyone wants to have a more positive impact on people and planet. Uh, You do not, unfortunately, still see that kind of unified approach to wanting to stamp out endemic corruption risks. I think with um, when you talk the language of ESG, when you talk the language of development impact, um, there's a sense of positivity and optimism and this desire to do good and people feel motivated and empowered to be able to affect change. Whereas when you speak the language of corruption, there's this sense of hopelessness or defeatism or this sense that, well, this is just endemic to certain markets and there's no way that I as an individual or I as a lone company could change the entire system and how it operates uh, when it has illicit aspects to it. Um, But I think that it's uh, very motivating when you start to connect those dots to realize that actually all of these are integrated challenges and that to take on 
one positive outcome uh, if you think about it holistically enough and if you're sensible about identifying different dynamics or how things are working that you can actually start to tackle corruption as well or underlying other integrity uh, drivers to to certain ESG risks as well. So I think that that uh, is, is good. And then I also think that as we start to settle on definitions of ESG that also include things like corporate governance and business integrity risk management, the sort of widest possible umbrella of what we at BII think of as responsible investing or responsible business operations, um, that you will start to see those kinds of controls come up, certainly within the private sector, things like internal controls, um, reportings, escalations, whistleblowing policies, et cetera, um, that essentially do start to stamp out endemic or start to take on endemic corruption risks and stamp out um, sort of lazy, um, you know, exposures to corruptions. There has been a lot of interesting academic research that sort of talks about changing vicious cycles of corruption into virtuous cycles uh, where people, you know, start to tackle small levels, you know, the facilitation payments um, and the daily sort of corruption risks that come up through business operation but end up when enough people are doing it having a market shaping effect where you are starting to tackle that endemic risk. Yeah and and maybe just to turn the question on its head slightly do you think there's anything that professionals working in the environmental and social space can learn from the way in which this integrity has become institutionalized at, at firms and investors because it's certainly not without its challenges so if you think about some of the problems that are sometimes cited around compliance driven approaches so where the focus is more on the process so your kind of due diligence and maybe things like know your customer processes and not so much the outcome that we're seeking which is it's reduced risk are there any kind of warning signs from the business integrity world which we should be flagging so I think we've been through quite a journey in the business integrity context where, you know, there was always some form of applicable anti-corruption and anti-money laundering law and anti-fraud laws and things like that. And those drove that compliance-led approach that you've just alluded to, where you did take, you know, just a checkbox list of, you know, does my business partner have a ABC policy? Yes, then okay, let's go ahead. Or, you know, if you were tossing in um, anti bribery and corruption clauses and legal agreements um, that you assume that you were protected in this context. But everyone has learned those hard lessons that it has to be a beyond compliance approach and that meaningful integrity risk management means really understanding the market context, the sector context, um, understanding a business's operations and how it will intersect with things like government exposure, procurement, um, the complexities of supply chains, et cetera, and that it's only that holistic approach that can help you start to meaningfully manage uh, business integrity risks in the whole. And I think that one of the interesting dynamics with ESG right now is that there is this clamor from you know, any organization that's starting to take on the ESG cha uh, challenge uh, for improved clarity around regulations, more guidelines, uh, more clear definitions, more thresholds, you know, and that as you start to get more and more codification of what a good ESG framework or an ESG reporting approach might look like, that you'll essentially start to see that 
tick box approach to ESG risk management, which we've seen in the compliance and business integrity world already. And that you'll have to sort of wait to go through that cycle to recognize that actually it does have to be a risk-based approach that's more driven uh, by the realities of sector, country, geography, yeah. context, and that you should always be attuned to that and always be willing to take that more holistic approach to really understand what the true risks are. No, completely understood. Great. So we're just nearing the end of our time and we always conclude the podcast by asking guests, where would you like to see more research on anti-corruption? There's an audience here of, of researchers and practitioners working in this space. What topics would you like to see get more attention? The question that we're always asking is how do you best measure or demonstrate the links between better integrity risk management uh, or better corruption risk management uh, with improved development impact or environmental and social outcomes. So how do you, it's something that I've been arguing for through this entire discussion and that we sort of try and and build into our approach at BII. Um, And I personally feel very passionate about this, but that is largely driven by an instinctive understanding of these risks and the way that you would mitigate them. And I think really spending some time time trying to think about how would we start to either quantify some of those links or even uh, methodological approaches to uh, monitoring or data collection on these points that would help us um, really understand whether there actually is a demonstrable link between these issues would be really fascinating, I think. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people out there in the research space would be interested in those questions. And you know, it certainly would be good to see more collaboration between firms and and researchers on on those types of questions. The measurement question is always really interesting because, again, what I was talking about before in terms of having this more compliance-driven approach, it seems like the data firms often catch is more around some of the the activities, so the the basic controls and measures that they're putting in place. But what we kind of really want to try and understand is this, you know, how effective these things are, firstly, at the kind of the level of the firm, and then beyond that, the effect it might be having in some of the markets where you're where you're working where you know corruption is such an issue which we and something which we want to change i think any kind of research that also does inform uh, that market shaping level discussion would be really interesting and of course a major incentive then for the private sector to do more if you could demonstrate that their um, efforts would actually change market culture and overall um, reduction of corruption risks in a in a particular country or an ecosystem of some kind. I think that would be uh, amazing work to see and very valuable. Great. Well, you've set a, a big challenge there, so that's fantastic. Hima, thanks so much for your time today. This is really interesting discussion covering lots of ground. We really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you for having me.